Chapter Four, Part One of Pictures from Italy by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Genoa and its neighbourhood. The first impressions of such a place as Albaro, the suburb of Genoa where I am now, as my American friends would say, located, can hardly fail, I should imagine, to be mournful and disappointing. It requires a little time and use to overcome the feeling of depression, consequent at first on so much ruin and neglect. Novelty, pleasant to most people, is particularly delightful, I think, to me. I am not easily dispirited when I have the means of pursuing my own fancies and occupations, and I believe I have some natural aptitude for accommodating myself to circumstances. But as yet I stroll about here, in all the holes and corners of the neighbourhood, in a perpetual state of forlorn surprise, and returning to my villa, the Villa Bagnarello, it sounds romantic, but Signor Bagnarello is a butcher hard by, have sufficient occupation in pondering over my new experiences, and comparing them, very much to my own amusement, with my expectations, until I wander out again. The Villa Bagnarello, or the Pink Jail, a far more expressive name for the mansion, is in one of the most splendid situations imaginable. The noble bay of Genoa, with the deep blue Mediterranean, lies stretched out near at hand. Monstrous old desolate houses and palaces are dotted all about. Lofty hills, with their tops often hidden in the clouds, and with strong forts perched high up on their craggy sides, are close upon the left and in front, stretching from the walls of the house down to a ruined chapel which stands upon the bold and picturesque rocks on the seashore, are green vineyards, where you may wander all day long in partial shade through interminable vistas of grapes, trained on a rough trellis-work across the narrow paths. This sequestered spot is approached by lanes so very narrow that when we arrived at the Custom House, we found the people here had taken the measure of the narrowest among them, and were waiting to apply it to the carriage, which ceremony was gravely performed in the street, while we all stood by in breathless suspense. It was found to be a very tight fit, but just a possibility and no more, as I am reminded every day by the sight of various large holes which it punched in the walls on either side as it came along. We are more fortunate, I am told, than an old lady who took a house in these parts not long ago, and who stuck fast in her carriage in a lane, and as it was impossible to open one of the doors, she was obliged to submit to the indignity of being hauled through one of the little front windows like a harlequin. When you've got through these narrow lanes, you come to an archway, imperfectly stopped up by a rusty old gate, my gate. The rusty old gate has a bell to correspond, which you ring as long as you like, and which nobody answers, as it has no connection whatever with the house. But there is a rusty old knocker too, very loose, so that it slides round when you touch it, and if you learn the trick of it and knock long enough, somebody comes. The brave courier comes and gives you admittance. You walk into a seedy little garden, all wild and weedy, from which the vineyard opens. Cross it enter a square hall like a cellar, walk up a cracked marble staircase, and pass into a most enormous room with a vaulted roof and whitewashed walls, not unlike a great Methodist chapel. This is the Sala. It has five windows and five doors, 
and is decorated with pictures which would gladden the heart of one of those picture cleaners in london who hang up as a sign a picture divided like death and the lady at the top of the old ballad which always leaves you in a state of uncertainty whether the ingenious professor has cleaned one half or dirted the other the furniture of this sala is a sort of red brocade all the chairs are removable and the sofa weighs several tons on the same floor and opening out of this same chamber a dining-room drawing-room and diverse bedrooms each with a multiplicity of doors and windows upstairs are diverse other gaunt chambers and a kitchen and downstairs is another kitchen which with all sorts of strange contrivances for burning charcoal looks like an alchemical laboratory there are also some half-dozen small sitting-rooms where the servants in this hot july may escape from the heat of the fire and where the brave courier plays all sorts of musical instruments of his own manufacture all the evening long a mighty old wandering ghostly echoing grim bare house it is as ever i beheld or thought of there is a little vine-covered terrace opening from the drawing-room and under this terrace and forming one side of the little garden is what used to be the stable it is now a cow-house and has three cows in it so that we get new milk by the bucketful there is no pasturage near and they never go out but are constantly lying down and surfeiting themselves with vine leaves perfect italian cows enjoying the dolce far niente all day long they are presided over and slept with by an old man named Antonio and his son, two burnt Siena natives with naked legs and feet, who wear each a shirt, a pair of trousers, and a red sash, with a relic or some sacred charm like the bonbon of a twelfth cake hanging round the neck. The old man is very anxious to convert me to the Catholic faith, and exhorts me frequently. We sit upon a stone by the door sometimes in the evening, like Robinson Crusoe and Friday reversed, and he generally relates, towards my conversion, an abridgment of the history of St. Peter, chiefly, I believe, from the unspeakable delight he has in his imitation of the cock. The view, as I have said, is charming, but in the day you must keep the lattice blinds close shut, or the sun would drive you mad and when the sun goes down you must shut up all the windows, or the mosquitoes would tempt you to commit suicide. So at this time of the year you don't see much of the prospect within doors. As for the flies, you don't mind them, nor the fleas, whose size is prodigious, and whose name is legion, and who populate the coach-house to that extent that I daily expect to see the carriage going off bodily, drawn by myriads of industrious fleas in harness." the rats are kept away quite comfortably by scores of lean cats who roam about the garden for that purpose the lizards of course nobody cares for they play in the sun and don't bite the little scorpions are merely curious the beetles are rather late and have not appeared yet the frogs are company there is a preserve of them in the grounds of the next villa and after nightfall one would think that scores upon scores of women in patterns were going up and down a wet stone pavement without a moment's cessation. That is exactly the noise they make. The ruined chapel on the picturesque and beautiful seashore was dedicated once upon a time to St. John the Baptist. 
I believe there is a legend that St. John's bones were received there with various solemnities when they were first brought to Genoa, for Genoa possesses them to this day. When there is any uncommon tempest at sea, they are brought out and exhibited to the raging weather, which they never fail to calm. In consequence of this connection of St. John with the city, great numbers of the common people are christened Giovanni Baptista, which latter name is pronounced in the Genoese patois Baticcia, like a sneeze. To hear everybody calling everybody else Baticcia on a Sunday or Festa day, when there are crowds in the streets, is not a little singular and amusing to a stranger. The narrow lanes have great villas opening into them, whose walls, outside walls I mean, are profusely painted with all sorts of subjects, grim and holy. But time and the sea air have nearly obliterated them, and they look like the entrance to Vauxhall Gardens on a sunny day. The courtyards of these houses are overgrown with grass and weeds. All sorts of hideous patches cover the bases of the statues, as if they were afflicted with a cutaneous disorder. The outer gates are rusty, and the iron bars outside the lower windows are all tumbling down. Firewood is kept in halls, where costly treasures might be heaped up, mountains high. Waterfalls are dry and choked. Fountains, too dull to play and too lazy to work, have just enough recollection of their identity and their sleep to make the neighbourhood damp, and the Sirocco wind is often blowing over all these things for days together, like a gigantic oven out for a holiday. Not long ago there was a festa day in honour of the Virgin's mother, when the young men of the neighbourhood, having worn green wreaths of the vine in some procession or other, bathed in them by scores. It looked very odd and pretty, though I am bound to confess, not knowing of the festa at that time, that I thought, and was quite satisfied, they wore them as horses do, to keep the flies off. Soon afterwards there was another festa day, in honour of St. Nazaro. One of the Albaro young men brought two large bouquets soon after breakfast, and coming upstairs into the great sala, presented them himself. This was a polite way of begging for a contribution towards the expense of some music in the saint's honour, so we gave him whatever it may have been, and his messenger departed, well satisfied. At six o'clock in the evening we went to the church, close at hand, a very gaudy place, hung all over with festoons and bright draperies, and filled from the altar to the main door with women all seated. They wear no bonnets here, simply a long white veil, the mitzero, and it was the most gauzy, ethereal-looking audience I ever saw. The young women are not generally pretty, but they walk remarkably well, and in their personal carriage and the management of their veils display much innate grace and elegance. There were some men present, not very many, and a few of these were kneeling about the aisles, while everybody else tumbled over them. Innumerable tapers were burning in the church. The bits of silver and tin about the saints, especially in the Virgin's necklace, sparkled brilliantly. The priests were seated about the chief altar, the organ played away lustily, and a full band did the like, while a conductor in a little gallery opposite to the band hammered away on the desk before him with a scroll, and a tenor, without any voice, sang. The band played one way, the organ played another, the singer went a third, and the unfortunate conductor banged and banged and flourished his scroll on some principle of his own, 
apparently well satisfied with the whole performance. I never did hear such a discordant din. The heat was intense all the time. The men in red caps and with loose coats hanging on their shoulders, they never put them on, were playing bowls and buying sweetmeats immediately outside the church. When half a dozen of them finished a game, they came into the aisle, crossed themselves with the holy water, knelt on one knee for an instant, and walked off again to play another game at bowls. They are remarkably expert at this diversion, and will play in the stony lanes and streets and on the most uneven and disastrous ground for such a purpose, with as much nicety as on a billiard-table. But the most favourite game is the national one of Mora, which they pursue with surprising ardour, and at which they will stake everything they possess. It is a destructive kind of gambling, requiring no accessories but the ten fingers, which are always, I intend no pun, at hand. Two men play together. One calls a number, say the extreme one ten. He marks what portion of it he pleases by throwing out three or four or five fingers, and his adversary has, in the same instant at hazard, and without seeing his hand, to throw out as many fingers as will make the exact balance. Their eyes and hands become so used to this, and act with such astonishing rapidity, that an uninitiated bystander would find it very difficult, if not impossible, to follow the progress of the game. The initiated, however, of whom there is always an eager group looking on, devour it with the most intense avidity, and as they are always ready to champion one side or the other in case of a dispute, and are frequently divided in their partisanship, it is often a very noisy proceeding. It is never the quietest game in the world, for the numbers are always called in a loud, sharp voice, and follow as close upon each other as they can be counted. On a holiday evening, standing at a window, or walking in a garden, or passing through the streets, or sauntering in any quiet place about the town, you will hear this game in progress in a score of wine-shops at once, and looking over any vineyard walk, or turning almost any corner, will come upon a knot of players in full cry. It is observable that most men have a propensity to throw out some particular number oftener than another, and the vigilance with which two sharp-eyed players will mutually endeavour to detect this weakness and adapt their game to it is very curious and entertaining. The effect is greatly heightened by the universal suddenness and vehemence of gesture, two men playing for half a farthing with an intensity as all-absorbing as if the stake were life. Hard by here is a large palazzo formerly belonging to some member of the Brignole family, but just now hired by a school of Jesuits for their summer quarters. I walked into its dismantled precincts the other evening about sunset, and couldn't help pacing up and down for a little time, drowsily taking in the aspect of the place, which is repeated hereabouts in all directions. I loitered to and fro under a colonnade, forming two sides of a weedy grass-grown courtyard, whereof the house formed a third side, and a low terrace walk overlooking the garden and the neighbouring hills the fourth. I don't believe there was an uncracked stone in the whole pavement. In the centre was a melancholy statue, so piebald in its decay that it looked exactly as if it had been covered with sticking-plaster, and afterwards powdered. The stables, coach-houses, offices were all empty, all ruinous, all utterly deserted. 
doors had lost their hinges and were holding on by their latches windows were broken painted plaster had peeled off and was lying about in clods fowls and cats had so taken possession of the outbuildings that i couldn't help thinking of the fairy tales and eyeing them with suspicion as transformed retainers waiting to be changed back again one old tom in particular a scraggy brute with a hungry green eye a poor relation in reality i'm inclined to think came prowling round and round me as if he half believed for the moment that i might be the hero come to marry the lady and set all to rights but discovering his mistake he suddenly gave a grim snarl and walked away with such a tremendous tail that he couldn't get into the little hole where he lived but was obliged to wait outside until his indignation and his tail had gone down together in a sort of summer-house or whatever it may be in this colonnade some englishmen had been living like grubs in a nut but the jesuits had given them notice to go and they had gone and that was shut up too the house a wandering echoing thundering barrack of a place with the lower windows barred up as usual was wide open at the door and i have no doubt i might have got in and gone to bed and gone dead and nobody a bit the wiser only one suite of rooms on an upper floor was tenanted and from one of these the voice of a young lady vocalist practising bravura lustily came flaunting out upon the silent evening i went down into the garden intended to be prim and quaint with avenues and terraces and orange trees and statues and water in stone basins and everything was green gaunt weedy straggling undergrown or overgrown mildewy damp redolent of all sorts of slabby clammy creeping and uncomfortable life there was nothing bright in the whole scene but a firefly one solitary firefly showing against the dark bushes like the last little speck of the departed glory of the house and even it went flitting up and down at sudden angles and leaving a place with a jerk and describing an irregular circle and returning to the same place with a twitch that startled one as if it were looking for the rest of the glory and wondering heaven knows it might what had become of it in the course of two months the flitting shapes and shadows of my dismal entering reverie gradually resolved themselves into familiar forms and substances and i already began to think that when the time should come a year hence for closing the long holiday and turning back to england i might part from genoa with anything but a glad heart it is a place that grows upon you every day there seems to be always something to find out in it there are the most extraordinary alleys and byways to walk about in you can lose your way what a comfort that is when you are idle twenty times a day if you like and turn up again under the most unexpected and surprising difficulties it abounds in the strangest contrasts things that are picturesque ugly mean magnificent delightful and offensive break upon the view at every turn they who would know how beautiful the country immediately surrounding genoa is should climb in clear weather to the top of montefaccio or at least ride round the city walls a feat more easily performed no prospect can be more diversified and lovely than the changing views of the harbour and the valleys of the two rivers the polchevera and the bisagno from the heights along which the strongly fortified walls are carried like the great wall of china in little 
in not the least picturesque part of this ride there is a fair specimen of real genoese tavern where the visitor may derive good entertainment from real genoese dishes such as tagliarini ravioli german sausages strong of garlic sliced and eaten with fresh green figs coxcombs and sheep kidneys chopped up with mutton chops and liver small pieces of some unknown part of a calf twisted into small shreds fried and served up in a great dish like whitebait and other curiosities of that kind they often get wine at these suburban trattoria from france and spain and portugal which is brought over by small captains in little trading vessels they buy it at so much a bottle without asking what it is or caring to remember if anybody tells them and usually divided it into two heaps of which they label one champagne and the other madeira the various opposite flavours qualities countries age and vintages that are comprised under these two general heads is quite extraordinary the most limited range is probably from cool gruel up to old masala and down again to apple tea the great majority of the streets are as narrow as any thoroughfare can well be where people even italian people are supposed to live and walk about being mere lanes with here and there a kind of well or breathing place the houses are immensely high painted in all sorts of colours and are in every stage and state of damage dirt and lack of repair they are commonly let off in floors or flats like the houses in the old town of edinburgh or many houses in paris there are few street doors the entrance halls are for the most part looked upon as public property and any moderately enterprising scavenger might make a fine fortune by now and then clearing them out as it is impossible for coaches to penetrate into these streets there are sedan chairs gilded and otherwise for hire in diverse places a great many private chairs are also kept among the nobility and gentry and at night these are trotted to and fro in all directions, preceded by bearers of great lanthorns, made of linen stretched upon a frame. The sedans and lanthorns are the legitimate successors of the long strings of patient and much-abused mules that go jingling their little bells through these confined streets all day long. They follow them as regularly as the stars the sun. When shall I forget the streets of palaces, the strada nuova, and the strada balbi or how the former looked one summer day when i first saw it underneath the brightest and most intensely blue of summer skies which its narrow perspective of immense mansions reduced to a tapering and most precious strip of brightness looking down upon the heavy shade below a brightness not too common even in july and august to be well esteemed for if the truth must out there were not eight blue skies in as many midsummer weeks saving sometimes early in the morning when looking out to sea the water and the firmament were one world of deep and brilliant blue at other times there were clouds and haze enough to make an englishman grumble in his own climate the endless details of these rich palaces the walls of some of them within alive with masterpieces by van dyke the great heavy stone balconies one above another and tier over tier with here and there one larger than the rest towering high up a huge marble platform 
the doorless vestibules massively barred lower windows immense public staircases thick marble pillars strong dungeon-like arches and dreary dreaming echoing vaulted chambers among which the eye wanders again and again and again as every palace is succeeded by another the terrace gardens between house and house with green arches of the vine and groves of orange trees and blushing oleander in full bloom twenty thirty forty feet above the street the painted halls mouldering and blotting and rotting in the damp corners and still shining out in beautiful colours and voluptuous designs where the walls are dry the faded figures on the outsides of the houses holding wreaths and crowns and flying upward and downward and standing in niches and here and there looking fainter and more feeble than elsewhere by contrast with some fresh little cupids who on a more recently decorated portion of the front are stretching out what seems to be the semblance of a blanket but is indeed a sundial the steep steep uphill streets of small palaces but very large palaces for all that with marble terraces looking down into close byways the magnificent and innumerable churches and the rapid passage from a street of stately edifices into a maze of the vilest squalor steaming with unwholesome stenches and swarming with half-naked children and whole worlds of dirty people make up altogether such a scene of wonder so lively and yet so dead so noisy and yet so quiet so obtrusive and yet so shy and lowering so wide awake and yet so fast asleep that it is a sort of intoxication to a stranger to walk on and on and on and look about him a bewildering phantasmagoria with all the inconsistency of a dream and all the pain and all the pleasure of an extravagant reality the different uses to which some of these palaces are applied all at once is characteristic for instance the english banker my excellent and hospitable friend has his office in a good-sized palazzo in the strada nuova in the hall every inch of which is elaborately painted but which is as dirty as a police station in london a hook-nosed saracen's head with an immense quantity of black hair there is a man attached to it sells walking-sticks on the other side of the doorway a lady with a showy handkerchief for headdress wife to the saracen's head i believe sells articles of her own knitting and sometimes flowers a little further in two or three blind men occasionally beg sometimes they are visited by a man without legs on a little go-cart but who has such a fresh-coloured lively face and such a respectable well-conditioned body that he looks as if he had sunk into the ground up to his middle or had come but partially up a flight of cellar steps to speak to somebody a little further in a few men perhaps lie asleep in the middle of the day or they may be chairmen waiting for their absent freight if so they have brought their chairs in with them and there they stand also on the left of the hall is a little room a hatter's shop on the first floor is the english bank on the first floor also is a whole house and a good large residence too heaven knows what there may be above that but when you are there you have only just begun to go upstairs and yet coming downstairs again thinking of this and passing out at a great crazy door in the back of the hall instead of turning the other way to get into the street again it bangs behind you 
making the dismalest and most lonesome echoes, and you stand in a yard, the yard of the same house, which seems to have been unvisited by human foot for a hundred years. Not a sound disturbs its repose, not a head thrust out of any of the grim, dark, jealous windows within sight makes the weeds in the cracked pavement faint of heart by suggesting the possibility of there being hands to grub them up. Opposite to you is a giant figure carved in stone, reclining with an urn upon a lofty piece of artificial rockwork, and out of the urn dangles the fag-end of a leaden pipe, which once upon a time poured a small torrent down the rocks. But the eye-sockets of the giant are not drier than this channel is now. He seems to have given his urn, which is nearly upside down, a final tilt, and after crying like a sepulchral child, all gone, to have lapsed into a stony silence. In the streets of shops the houses are much smaller, but of great size notwithstanding, and extremely high. They are very dirty, quite undrained if my nose be at all reliable, and emit a peculiar fragrance like the smell of a very bad cheese kept in very hot blankets. Notwithstanding the height of the houses, there would seem to have been a lack of room in the city, for new houses are thrust in everywhere. Wherever it has been possible to cram a tumble-down tenement into a crack or corner, in it has gone. If there be a nook or angle in the wall of a church, or a crevice in any other dead wall of any sort, there you are sure to find some kind of habitation, looking as if it had grown there like a fungus. Against the government house, against the old senate house, round about any large building, little shops stick so close like parasite vermin to the great carcass. And for all this, look where you may, up steps, down steps, anywhere, everywhere, there are irregular houses, receding, starting forward, tumbling down, leaning against their neighbours, crippling themselves or their friends by some means or other, until one more irregular than the rest chokes up the way, and you can't see any further. One of the rottenest-looking parts of the town, I think, is down by the landing wharf, though it may be that its being associated with a great deal of rottenness on the evening of our arrival has stamped it deeper in my mind. Here again the houses are very high, and are of an infinite variety of deformed shapes, and have, as most of the houses have, something hanging out of a great many windows, and wafting its frowsy fragrance on the breeze. Sometimes it is a curtain, sometimes it is a carpet, sometimes it is a bed, sometimes a whole line full of clothes, but there is almost always something. Before the basement of these houses is an arcade over the pavement, very massive, dark and low, like an old crypt. The stone or plaster of which it is made has turned quite black, and against every one of these black piles all sorts of filth and garbage seem to accumulate spontaneously. Beneath some of the arches, the sellers of macaroni and polenta establish their stalls, which are by no means inviting. The offer of a fish market near at hand, that is to say of a back lane, where people sit upon the ground, and on various old bulkheads and sheds, and sell fish when they have any to dispose of, and of a vegetable market, constructed on the same principle, are contributed to the decoration of this quarter, and as all the mercantile business is transacted here, and it is crowded all day, it has a very decided flavour about it. The Porto Franco, or Free Port, 
where goods brought in from foreign countries pay no duty until they are sold and taken out, as in a bonded warehouse in England, is down here also. And two portentous officials in cocked hats stand at the gate to search you if they choose, and to keep out monks and ladies. For sanctity as well as beauty has been known to yield to the temptation of smuggling, and in the same way, that is to say, by concealing the smuggled property beneath the loose folds of its dress. So sanctity and beauty may by no means enter. The streets of Genoa would be all the better for the importation of a few priests of prepossessing appearance. Every fourth or fifth man in the streets is a priest or a monk, and there is pretty sure to be at least one itinerant ecclesiastic inside or outside every hackney carriage on the neighbouring roads. I have no knowledge elsewhere of more repulsive countenances than are to be found among these gentry. If nature's handwriting be at all legible, greater varieties of sloth, deceit and intellectual torpor could hardly be observed among any class of men in the world. Mr. Pepys once heard a clergyman assert in his sermon, in illustration of his respect for the priestly office, that if he could meet a priest and angel together, he would salute the priest first. I am rather of the opinion of Petrarch, who, when his pupil Boccaccio wrote to him in great tribulation, that he had been visited and admonished for his writings by a Carthusian friar, who claimed to be a messenger immediately commissioned by heaven for that purpose, replied that for his own part he would take the liberty of testing the reality of the commission by personal observation of the messenger's face, eyes, forehead, behaviour and discourse. I cannot but believe myself from similar observation that many unaccredited celestial messengers may be seen skulking through the streets of Genoa or droning away their lives in other Italian towns. Perhaps the Cappuccini, though not a learned body, are, as an order, the best friends of the people. They seem to mingle with them more immediately as their counsellors and comforters, and to go among them more when they are sick, and to pry less than some other orders into the secrets of families, for the purpose of establishing a baleful ascendancy over their weaker members, and to be influenced by a less fierce desire to make converts, and once made to let them go to ruin soul and body. They may be seen in their coarse dress in all parts of the town at all times, and begging in the markets early in the morning. The Jesuits, too, muster strong in the streets, and go slinking noiselessly about in pairs like black cats. In some of the narrow passages distinct trades congregate. There is a street of jewellers, and there is a row of booksellers, but even down in places where nobody ever can or ever could penetrate in a carriage, there are mighty old palaces shut in among the gloomiest and closest walls, and almost shut out from the sun. Very few of the tradesmen have any idea of setting forth their goods, or disposing them for show. If you, a stranger, want to buy anything, you usually look round the shop till you see it, then clutch it if it be within reach, and inquire how much. Everything is sold at the most unlikely place. If you want coffee, you go to a sweetmeat shop, and if you want meat, you will probably find it behind an old check curtain down half a dozen steps, in some sequestered nook as hard to find, as if the commodity were poison, and Genoa's law were death to any that uttered it. Most of the apothecaries' shops are great lounging places. 
Here grave men with sticks sit down in the shade for hours together, passing a meagre Genoa paper from hand to hand, and talking drowsily and sparingly about the news. Two or three of these are poor physicians, ready to proclaim themselves on an emergency and tear off with any messenger who may arrive. You may know them by the way in which they stretch their necks to listen when you enter, and by the sigh with which they fall back again into their dull corners on finding that you only want medicine. Few people lounge in the barber's shops, though they are very numerous, as hardly any man shaves himself. But the apothecary's has its group of loungers, who sit back among the bottles, with their hands folded over the tops of their sticks, so still and quiet that either you don't see them in the darkened shop, or mistake them, as I did one ghostly man in bottle green one day with a hat like a stopper, for horse medicine. End of chapter 4, part 1